You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 7. Thank you, Ina, for leading us in reading Scripture and prayer. We're going to be in those verses that Ina just read for us. And uh, if you're new here, my name is Jamin, and I'm one of the pastors here at Citizens. I'm so uh, glad that you chose uh, to worship with us wherever you are. Uh, kind of in your relationship with God or with church. Maybe this is all really new for you. Maybe you're new to the area and you're just looking for a new church. Either way, uh, we're so thrilled that you're here with us. If you're watching online, wherever you are, thank you so much for joining us. We are uh, concluding uh, a sermon series this morning. We will end a sermon series that we've been in, and it's been a sermon series on a sermon that Jesus preached called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Just to give you an idea of where we're going after this, we'll have a couple weeks Uh, where we have some teachers come in and uh, do standalone sermons. And then in August, what we're going to do is we're going to spend the month of August uh, in a sermon series called Belonging, where we're looking at the purpose of the local church. Just really have sensed in the last year and a half just a great need in this moment uh, to remember the power of and purpose behind the local church, and then really felt the sense to answer some questions here at Citizens that maybe even though we've, we've been around for a little bit now that we haven't answered. So that's where we're going. That sermon series will culminate in a season of member renewal here uh, where we're inviting kind of a recommitment to the church uh, or first-time commitment to the church. And so more on that uh, as we get into that. And then in the fall, we'll start our next major sermon series will be on uh, wisdom and the fear of the Lord. So we'll spend all the fall, maybe the spring, wisdom, the fear of the Lord, looking at Proverbs and other wisdom books. What I'm not going to do is I'm not going to tell you uh, what I've learned is to not tell you when a sermon series is going to end because I have lied to you so many times when I've done that. Speaking of that, we started walking through the Sermon on the Mount September 13th of 2020, which feels like a, a decade ago. I don't know about you, but that feels like a really long time ago because a lot of life has happened in that. But we spent a ton of time in chapter 5, all of the fall into the spring in chapter 5. We spent the rest of our time really in chapter 6. In the last few weeks, we've been in chapter 7. And so one of the things that we get to do, one of the things that I at least get to do, and I know not everyone has been here for that whole time, but just to try and put in really simple, maybe even memorable terms, the point of the sermon. If you were to say, Jamin, you know, all the teaching and all the reading and all the studying, if you were to say, what, it, what is the sermon trying to accomplish in my life? Uh, as we walk through these verses, what kind of person is the sermon inviting me to be? Here's my answer. That the message of the Sermon on the Mount received in your life is going to make you a whole person who is holding on to Jesus. That's it. What Jesus is after in your life is you becoming a whole person holding on to him. That's life in the kingdom, citizens of the kingdom. The invitation of chapters 5, 6, and 7 is that you become a whole person holding to him. I get that from the the two major themes of the sermon. It ties together this idea of wholeness, that we are pure in heart, that we're not hypocritical, that we have a deep righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. But not just uh, that, but it's a wholeness that finds its substance in the person and work of Jesus. So we become whole in the kingdom over which Jesus and no one else is king. And so you hear this dependence language. You hear this exclusivity language from Jesus. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. 
We come to Him for forgiveness and trust and dependence. And so all of it together invited to be a whole person holding on to Jesus. That's life in the kingdom. Pay attention to something. That's the substance. And where we're at is we're in the ending. We're in Jesus' clothes. He has said all that he's going to say, and then what he does is he spends the last minutes he has telling us, concluding his sermon in a way to make sure that we take these words as serious as he wants us to, to ensure that we don't miss the, uh, the weight of what he's saying. Like, think about how he doesn't close the sermon. Think about how it doesn't end. He doesn't spend all this time in these three chapters saying become a whole person, holding on to Jesus and all of the work that he's done, and then say, um, thank you for listening, and if you liked what you heard, leave a nice review. He didn't do that. He doesn't get to the end, and he doesn't say, you know what, at least that's what I think about God and the kingdom. How do you feel about that? He doesn't pass out like a survey post-sermons that you can tell him what you thought about. No preacher wants that kind of thing, by the way. No, he, he ends. He preaches a sermon about life in the kingdom, invites you to become a whole person holding on to him, and then he starts saying really heavy things like narrow is the road and if you find it. He talks about two different kinds of trees. He talks about uh, wolves who actually look like sheep. And then he takes us to two scenes that you just heard Ina read. The first scene, people stand in front of him claiming to know him. Lord, Lord, we did all of these things. And Jesus says, I've never met you. He takes us to another scene where there are two houses in one storm. One house survives the storm and the other one crumbles into its weak foundation. And that's how it ends. What is Jesus doing? I talked to, to Marcus in between services and he just said, look, you know, in, in seminary, this is not how they teach you to end a sermon. This is not how they teach you to close a sermon. Uh, when you read other portions of Scripture, like the letters of the New Testament, they always end with something like, now to him who is able, right? They always close the argument with something that's maybe not a lighter note, but something different than this. During the 9 o'clock, I felt this tension. I've, been, I've loved the sermon series. I've loved as it is. Um, and I, I'm, I'm I'm grateful for what God's done, but I felt this tension that we're ending the series, and I felt what you'll feel, the discomfort of the text coming through me to you. And I'm naturally kind of more of a harmonizer, so I'm uncomfortable with that, right? There's a heaviness, and I would just rather end on a lighter note. I would rather end on a more comfortable one. It's 90s worship weekend, right? That makes everyone happy. I'm happy about that. I've, I've been thinking about those old days where they used to do church at Six Flags. You remember that? You could listen to DC Talk. Anybody? Okay, that's where my mind's going. That's, that's, that's where I'm at. And yet, we're ending the sermon, and it's Jesus' sermon. And so we have to end the way that he ends. And the way that he ends is sobering. It's weighty. And it's really important because there's something that he wants to make sure that we don't miss. When we started the series back in September, if you remember, one of the things we said was this sermon has been incredibly influential in the world not just over Christians, but this sermon, you've got historians who have traced the influence of this sermon and how it shaped Europe towards the end of and after the Roman Empire. Just even in our day, you have portions of this sermon that have made it into TED Talks. You've got portions of this sermon that have made it into movies. It's hard to overstate the impact and influence of this sermon. It's really the best there's ever been. Jesus is not just the King of Kings. He's the Prince of Preachers. He's that good. And his words have been heard by and used by millions. And there's a danger to that. There's a risk in its familiarity, and Jesus knows it. So he ends the sermon the way he ends. Influence and familiarity is not what he's after, friends. It's not what he's after. 
He did not preach a sermon to offer sound bites throughout history. He preached a sermon to change history. He did not preach the sermon to contribute wise words to the world, but to announce the breaking in of a whole new world. So church, friends, especially if you've been with us through this, you know what a waste would be? It would be a waste to have spent almost a year in this sermon and for our takeaway to be, you know, Jesus said some really good things. It would be a waste to say, you know, I thought the prayer he prayed was really nice. I've heard it before. It would be a waste to say, gosh, some of the stuff that he said about anxiety was really helpful because it's really relevant for me right now. That's not it. All of that can be true, but that just barely scratches the surface of what he intended. He cares deeply that we not take his words as suggestions. He cares deeply that we not take this sermon as one option among many or a collection of wise things. As one commentator said about the sermon, the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is not meant to be admired. It's meant to be obeyed. It was not intended by the preacher to simply be influential. That's not the choice Jesus presents. It's not like it or leave it. It's life or death. In in a world that recoils at stark options, stark options are all that Jesus offers. Life in the kingdom or no life at all. No Jesus or rejected by him. Life on the rock or life on the sand. All of his words pointing towards being a, a whole person holding on to him and to ensure that we don't underestimate what that means, that we don't undersell, that we don't underreact. He closes his time by saying in no uncertain terms how you respond to these words will determine one of two futures for you. Let me turn your attention to something. That is love. That's his love. It's heavy. It's difficult. But that's the love of Jesus. So don't misunderstand his tone. It's not arrogant. It's not apathetic. It's not, listen to me or you're all going to die, right? It's this heart from Jesus that cares that we take seriously, cares that we don't underreact to what matters most. It reminded me, reading this passage, it brought to mind a conversation I had with my dad when I was in high school. Um, I've shared this before, maybe even a couple times, but it was my sophomore year of high school. And uh, it was back when we were singing all the songs we sang this morning. And I was not loving and following Jesus at the time. Uh, I was a Christian. Uh, I'd been a believer. Uh, but I was in a point in my relationship with God where I was trying to live with, with one foot in the world and, and one foot following Jesus, which is just another way to say two feet in the world. And that came out of my life as sin and hurting people and lies that I had told. And so my dad sat me down uh, to have a conversation and he said he's concerned about me, and he's thinking about making a change to my schooling. He's thinking about making a school change and, and bringing me home from the school that I was at. And I, right before this conversation, had just made varsity on the football team. It was a really small school. And um, I said, you can't do that. You can't do that. I just made varsity. What about football? Where are they going to find another third-string linebacker? I mean, those are really rare. I was upset. I remember, you can't do that. What about football? And he was quiet, and he looked at me, and his eyes were soft, but his words were serious. And he quoted Jesus in Mark 8, and he said, Jamin, what profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? And it stuck. Like, it hit. He got real serious real quick, and he used really weighty words. But in those weighty words, I saw how urgent Dad 
believed my need to be. I saw how concerned he was. I saw how serious he was, and it changed me. Those weighty words spoken in that, it changed me. 20 years later, I still think about it, right? That urgency for him and what that was, his seriousness was not an absence of love. It was evidence of his love. A dad who desires good for me, speaking weighty words so I don't miss what matters most. And what he was in that moment is there were weighty words spoken out of a heart that was heavy with love. That's Jesus. That's Jesus here. Ending his sermon the way they tell you not to end sermons. Ending with these stories that are unsettling and uncomfortable because he cares so deeply that you believe him. He cares so deeply in love that you hear him. He pleads to respond to these words, to live in his kingdom as whole people holding unto him. So would you feel that weight, but know that that weight, those are weighty words spoken from a heart heavy with love. Here's what he says. 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so what that will look like for some people is this. For some, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? What a resume. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then, therefore, because of that, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. If you just think about that first scene, these people before Jesus, and you just observe with me what it says, there's so much right about their life. There's so much right about the people that Jesus, they are religious. Not only are they religious, but they, are, they say the right things about Jesus. There's something about their theology that's accurate. They call him Lord. Not just that, they have the right emotion to that theology. They say it twice, Lord, Lord. When something is repeated in this culture, it's repeated to capture passion. You remember Jesus on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's something about right emotion and right passion and right energy to what they're saying. And these guys have that. They don't just know that Jesus is Lord. They're excited about it. Lord, Lord. They're passionate about it. They say the right thing in the right way. And they've got these extraordinary gifts. Spiritual gifts, they wage spiritual warfare, they prophesy, they perform miracles, and it seems like they use those gifts in the right way. So they've got right words that they speak in the right way, and they've got extraordinary gifts that they use to do right things, and they bring all of it to Jesus, and they lay it before Jesus and all their credentials out in front of Jesus, and with just a few words, he exposes all of it. They call him Lord. He says, I, I don't know you. They call themselves miracle workers, and Jesus says he calls them workers of sin and lawlessness. Behind all of the right in their life was a lot of wrong. They were hearers of the word, not doers. They admired, but they didn't obey. They built the house, but underneath it was sand. Did you see what happened? Jesus gets really serious really quickly, and in his charge against them, in his few phrases to them, you hear that they did not respond to the sermon the way they were supposed to. 
They ignored the message of the sermon. The sermon is what? Whole people holding on to Jesus. There was no wholeness in their life. He tells them there's a gap between your gifts and your character. Workers of lawlessness. There is sin, unconfessed, unrepented, habitual sin in your life. And you might have gifts of the Spirit, but you don't have fruit of the Spirit. There's a huge gap between what they did and who they were. And the saddest part is there was no holding to Jesus. He says, depart from me, I never knew you. Not we once had a relationship and you left. Not you were saved and you lost your salvation. I never knew you. There's never been an intimate saving relationship between the two of us. So there's been great things done in Jesus' name, but no actual relationship with him. No trust, no dependence, and the result is they miss him. That's the judgment. Depart from me. You don't get me, Jesus says. What? A sad, what a scary scene. I think everyone, well, I think every Christian who has just an ounce of self-awareness, every Christian who has a, a, just a shred of tenderness to God, I think you hear that. I know I hear that and think, oh, no. <laughs> like there's a question you ask. If there's any self-awareness, if there's any tenderness, the question you ask is, is that me? Will that one day be me, right? Maybe you've thought this already. Gosh, what, what if I'm the Lord, Lord guy? What if I'm the Lord, Lord lady, right? What if I'm the house on the sand? And I think, just to be clear, I think that tension is intended by Jesus. Like, let me explain. Jesus tells these stories to force those kinds of serious questions. I cannot read this, I cannot read this passage without losing my breath a bit. I don't want that. I love Jesus. I don't want to miss Jesus. I don't want to be right about a lot and wrong about what matters most. But there is a right way to go and a wrong way to go from that reaction. And I need you to know the wrong way. These verses are meant to force good questions, but there's a way to react. There's a way to react to the discomfort in a way that Jesus didn't intend. Let me name it. If you hear that and your reaction is to throw your hands up and say, well, I guess I'll just try and do the best I can and then wait and see. If your reaction to that is, I can't really have assurance of God's love for me. I can't really know that I belong to the kingdom. I can't know for sure that I'm loved by Jesus. I guess I won't know for sure until I stand before him. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to live my Christian light with this cloud of doubt, and I'll just do my best and be afraid that it might not be enough. And so there's this cloud of doubt that motivates my obedience to God, and a cloud of doubt that motivates my giving to God, and a cloud of doubt that motivates all my conversations about God. And there's this huge question mark over my eternity and what will happen to me. And if that's the reaction, then you've missed this point. Think about, friend, all of the verses that tell us that we can be sure of where we stand with God. Romans 8 says, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Hebrews 10, approach the throne of grace with what? Confidence. Let us draw near with sincere hearts and full assurance of faith. Jesus himself John 10, my sheep hear my voice. They shall never perish. No one will snatch them from me. This may be the most important thing I say to you this morning. The claim of Christianity, please hear me, is not do your best and hope that someday it's enough. The claim of Christianity is that at your worst, God in Jesus gave his best 
spilled his blood, that he might make you what you had no shot of becoming on your own. And someday what he's going to do in your life is he's going to present you holy and blameless and beautiful, and he will welcome you into uninterrupted communion with him in perfect, joy-filled, reunited heaven and earth. Not because you tried hard, not because you got better, but because a resurrected Jesus reached into your dead life and gave you grace you didn't deserve and met you every day with mercy you could never earn, and he he and he alone has covered your past, sustains your present, and holds your future. Friend, you can be confident in that. You can be confident in that. Jesus, goodness, he's not trying to get you to doubt that. He gave his life for that. And so if you read this and the question is, gosh, can he really love me? Yes. If you read this and the question is, have I sinned too much? No. At least not beyond what he can forgive. If you read this and it's like, oh gosh, no, I, will, I don't want to miss Jesus. I don't want that. Uh, does he, will he tell me he doesn't know me? That you care about that is evidence of your love for him. Do you hear that? That you care about that, it's evidence of your love for him, the faith that you have in him. Friend, if you don't wince, if you don't worry, if you don't care, if you're not bothered at all, at the thought of life without Jesus then, it means you do not have life with him now. I need you to know that. But the sadness, if, if there's a fear, if there's a, oh no, if you feel at the thought of walking away from him, of not having him, of missing him then, if that's the reaction, that means you're holding on to him now. He loves you now. You love him now. This scene is not Jesus trying to undermine the assurance and the confidence that he gave his very life to secure. That's not what he's doing, Okay. What's the right response then? If that shouldn't be happening, if we don't go there, where do we go? If the words are weighty, if they're weighty words spoken from a heart that's heavy with love, what's the right reaction? Well, think about what these people missed. It's so important. They stand before Jesus, Lord, Lord, look at all we've done. And they describe their life. They describe what um, life with Jesus has looked like for them. And here's what they describe. Look what we've done. We were so impressive. We were so effective all in your name. And what Jesus does in his dismantling, he says, your hearts haven't changed. All of that might be true. Maybe you've done all that. You're no different. You've depended on you, not me. You were divided and duplicitous. You were not sincere. You were self-reliant and self-exalting. And here, here, here's what happened. You constructed your own life and you constructed your own way and your own religion. And then you put my name on it. And that is not the life I invited you into. They were hearers, not doers. Hear me? There is absolutely no danger for those who come to Jesus the King, receive his love, his grace through repentance and faith, and commit to the life that he invites you into. They are, you are safe in salvation if that's you. But there seems, there seems to be a very real danger where religious people can craft a religious life that uses Jesus' name but is not actually the life he offers? Would you, would you feel that danger, particularly in this point of the world, in this part of the world, filled with churches, filled with religious goods to consume as a religious consumer? There is a real danger 
that religious people can be more formed and shaped by the culture around them, can craft a religious life that uses Jesus' name, but it's not actually the one he offers. This life of public religious performance, a life of shallow character where there's no pursuit of God, that's the opposite of what Jesus offers on the mountain. So the concern to have, the question to ask, because he loves you, is the life I'm pursuing especially the Christian life I claim to be living, is it the one Jesus offers or is it something else? Is the life I'm living, the life I'm pursuing, is it the one Jesus offers or is it something else? How do you know? He tells us in the sermon. The answer to that question is driven by what Jesus has already offered, that that life that he offers, the life he's invited into, the grace that covers us, the love that covers us, that propels us into this kind of kingdom living, it's marked by three things that you've already heard according to his sermon. It's marked by a life that moves past sin on the surface and goes to sin at the source. It's marked by a life that has a hidden life with God. There is private communion, not simply public religion. And it's marked by a life that lives not for this world, but lives for the world to come. That's it. The whole people who hold on to Jesus, their life is filled with those three things. Their life is marked by those three things. Would you remember them with me quickly? The first, we move past sin on the surface and we deal with sin at the source. That's the invitation from Jesus. As he begins to unpack that life, in, in, in chapter 5, verse 17, he starts that conversation. You have to have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And how he defined that is that's not a righteousness that's wider. It's a righteousness that's deeper. It means you go past sin at the surface, and you deal with sin at the source. It's why he says, you've heard, don't murder, that surface. Let's go to where the murder begins. Deal with the anger in the heart, and that's everybody. Last March, right after COVID started, the rollers did what a lot of people did during that time, and we started working a lot more on our yard. We became uh, experts in landscaping, according to us, according to me. I don't want to bring Carrie into that. Um, we had these uh, boxwoods in our backyard that just took up space and, and were ugly. If you have them and like them, then... Anyway, so um, <laughs> they're bushes, they're shrubs, and we took them out. But what I did was, uh, because I'm a landscape expert, I just cut them off a little bit below the dirt. And, uh, and that's how I remove them. And so what happens? They just keep growing back. Like, quick. They're like these mutant bushes, right? They just keep on growing back. And so what I have to do is every few months, I go back there and I have to cut them back again. The other day, uh, my son watched me do that again. And he said, Dad, I don't think this is how you're supposed to do it. <laughs> he said, I think you have to dig deeper to really get them out. And so that's when, I, in that moment, I decided, here's my plan. I'm just going to leave them alone until he's old enough to take them out because apparently he knows so much about how it works. Our Lord. Jesus tells us that life in the kingdom, it is not managing sin at the surface. It is not cutting back sin just to the point that no one can see. It's uprooting it at the source. People especially in this portion of the world. People live their entire religious life simply trying to keep idolatry and simply trying to keep lust and simply trying to keep selfishness hidden just below the dirt. And Jesus says, that's not the life I offered. That's not a whole person. That's not holding on to me. That's you trying to save yourself. That's me trying to manage my sin and brokenness. No, no, no. The life I'm offering is the one that goes deeper than that. 
That's the argument. That's the plea that he has. Go after sin at the source. So below the adultery is lust. Go after that. As marriage exposes your sin, like it always does, be honest, confess, go deep into uprooting the selfishness that was exposed, and then go deeper into your promises. When you're wronged and someone says, walk a mile, go deeper into trust in God and his justice so you can offer kindness. Uh, Love with a distinct enemy-loving, persecutor-blessing love of God. Not just your friends. Everyone loves like that. That is surface love. Love deeper than that, which is going to uproot prejudice, and it's going to uproot pride and self-protection. Are you? Are you, are you living that kind of life? Are you living the kind of life that will move below what lies just beneath the surface and ask the questions and you do the work to uproot sin at the very source? And what that looks like is it means you're going to know yourself. You're going to know your idols. You're going to know your sins. You're not going to have a whole lot of time to be wrapped up in what everyone else is doing wrong because you're going to have eyes for where you still need grace and you still need change and you still need sanctification. And you're not avoiding that. You're doing the grace-driven work of ripping those things out of the soil of your heart. Are you living that kind of life? And the best news, as you're doing that work, as you're ripping it out of the soil of your heart, there's grace for whatever's there. Goodness, the good news of the gospel is that whatever is uprooted is already paid for. Praise God. Whatever is revealed, whatever is exposed is already put. Jesus invites you to live a life that follows the sin underneath the surface to the source, and he himself goes there with you. He himself does that work with you to flood whatever you find with grace and to flood whatever you find with mercy and love. He doesn't tell you to pay for it. He simply asks you to not pretend like it's not there. Are you living that kind of life? Are you a doer of that word? Here's the second. We live a hidden life with God. People who have said yes to the life that Jesus actually offers, they have a hidden life with God. There is private communion with the holy God, obedience that's not just public religion. This is what he taught in chapter 6. He introduced us to a character who was a character called the hypocrite. They were an actor, and their life was marked only by public religion. Their life was marked only by a public display of righteousness. They only pray when others can hear. They only give when others can see. They only fast so others can notice. And what marked their life is they would fake love for God to try and earn love from others. And that's not life in the kingdom. That's not the life that Jesus offers. He offers the invitation to become whole and sincere, not fake. Not a life of pretending, but a life of sincerely seeking God. And and that, friend, that is the way of the suburbs, especially affluent suburbs like the one that we're in. The message, the pull, the life that, the, that this culture that we're in invites us into, pretend to be what you know you're not, to earn the love and approval and acceptance you never believe you'll actually get. So spend towards that end and post towards that end and flaunt towards that end. And that's a sad and dangerous way to live, especially when part of that pretending is religious pretending and trying to present as godly when you're not and trying to present as mature when you're not and trying to present as better than most. And the tragic thing about it is what I miss if I live that life is I miss this beautiful truth that there is a God right now who can love me and receive me and wants to spend time not with the presentation of me, but with who I actually am. 
all my faults, all my failures, everything that's wrong. The unadorned version of me is the very one that God can love. And so Jesus calls us into a life of actual, private, hidden communion with God so that that comes out of our life as a sincere love for God. And what he says is, get alone with him. You'll love it. He's kind and he's tender and he's gentle. Before him, you can be completely known and completely loved and not live for approval, but live from his approval and pray to him, hide with him, tell him who he is, call him father, pray for the kingdom to come, confess your sin, he already knows, tell him your needs. He's eager to meet them, not because of all the people watching, but because of God who sees you right now. Will our desires ever be completely pure? Will we ever completely shake that pull towards pretending no? But my question is, are you fighting at all? Is there a desire in you to, to bridge that gap through grace-driven? Is, is there, can you agree at least with what David prays in Psalm 27, one thing I ask, the one thing I want, one thing I seek is to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, to be in his presence. Are you living that kind of life? If you are, it means you'll be the same person in private as you are in public, or at least or at least there is grace-driven work to bridge that gap. It means there is obedience and faithfulness that no one but God sees in your life because his sight is all that matters. Are you a doer of that word? Third, we don't live for this world. We live for the world to come. We called the series as it is, right straight from the sermon, just pulled it from the Lord's Prayer. And it's because the story behind the sermon is that Jesus has announced the future kingdom both is and is to come the preaching he was doing before this sermon was a one line, the kingdom of God is at hand. The question we asked when we started in September is the thing that this sermon is going to confront us with is the question, do you believe the story the sermon tells? Because the sermon only makes sense in the context of the story. And what Jesus says is the world we've been waiting for both is and is coming, the world of peace and rest and enjoyment of God that makes everything wrong right again. It's here in Jesus. It's coming in Jesus. So don't store up treasure on earth. Don't love this world. Don't fight like the world fights. The world we're waiting for is and is coming, and it changes everything about life right now. And so what that means for you, if you're living that kind of life, here's what Jesus has said straight from his sermon. Because of the world that is and is coming, I don't and you don't. We don't believe this world's wrongs will go unpunished. So we can be merciful because we believe that. We don't believe this world's power is the way to flourish. So we can be meek, and that's okay. We don't believe this world's pain is meaningless, so we mourn and long for the comfort. We don't believe this world's conflict is beyond God's control, so we can be peacemakers. We don't believe this world's stuff will last forever, so we store up treasure in heaven. We don't believe this world's fears have the last word, so we give our anxieties to God. We don't believe this world's meaning can satisfy the heart, so we seek first the kingdom. All because we believe the world that we most long for both is and the kingdom is coming. It's here and it's coming. Jesus reigns and will return. Are you living that kind of life? In a gathering like this, I assume, could be wrong. In a gathering like this, I imagine there are a lot of us that need a reminder. But in a gathering like this, I believe that there are some of us who have heard for the first time, and maybe not heard for the first time like it's the first time I've heard that information, but heard for the first time as in it's the first time it's actually struck my heart. Jesus only offers one kind of life, 
The life he offers is the narrow road he invites you to walk. I'm not asking. Jesus is not expecting perfection. But this is the life he has said is the kingdom life, and any other life will miss him. But to hold on, know this, to hold on, to be changing, to be becoming whole, holding on to Jesus, to be stumbling, and we're all stumbling. We're all imperfect. But to be stumbling along as we uproot sin at the source, to be stumbling along in the hidden life with God as we love God and obey God even when no one sees, to be stumbling along and learning to live for the world to come is the way to live. And there, if that's you, if that's me, there is a very different conversation coming when you stand before Jesus. It's to be in front of him and before you can even speak, before you can even make your case, he knows your name. He knows you. Imagine with me, you have very little to say about you. You can't stop talking about his love and his kindness and his persistent faithfulness in your life, how good he is, and he responds to you, well done. I'm proud of you. All the time you chose the narrow path, all the times you held to me, all the times that you confessed, all of the unseen, quiet, private prayers you prayed, I heard, I delighted in. You're covered in grace and mercy, well done. And he restores anything to you that's been lost, and all that was confusing makes sense, but most of all, the one you held on to, you get to see face to face. Father, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. You have laid before us, holy God, a choice. I, I don't know of another way to say it, God. You've laid before us a choice. Would you protect the hearts and minds in the room? Would you protect from the tendency to react and be overcome with doubt or overcome with shame or overcome with fear that does not honor you? But would you also protect the hearts and minds in the room who respond as simply hearers who maybe believe, no, there's a middle road to walk when you've said there's not, who maybe convince themselves that there are uh, layers and levels at which we can respond to you when what you have said is there is hearing and there is doing and that's it. Would you call us again? Call us again to hold to you, Jesus. Not to earn our salvation, to receive your love. Call us again to uproot sin at the source. Call us again to have a hidden life with you. Call us again to wait and live and long for not this world that is, but the one that is coming. And would you bring it quickly, Jesus? Don't tarry. We love you. We miss you. We need you. May we respond in accordance with your word, may we take seriously the weighty words spoken from a heart heavy with love and would we run to you. Amen.